Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you, no matter where you live in the world, had a great weekend. I know I did, but of course, uh, the older I've gotten, or the older any of us get, uh, the weekends go by faster than we would you know, want them to. But nonetheless, I'm glad to be back on the air. The irony, though, is that I thought about being back on the air with you guys uh, a few days um, prior to today. In other words, I thought about being back on the air with you all back on Friday. But then my wife said to me, you know, Kirk, you podcasted the day before from Thursday. Why not let your um, viewers or your audience get caught up? And so I heeded her advice and allowed you all some extra time to get caught up on um, any episodes whether it's from this current series that we're talking about with uh, regards to Benedict Arnold or from any other uh, podcast uh, book series topic uh, that you all have not uh, finished just yet uh, but are in the process of uh, getting to that uh, climactic point. But nonetheless, I have, I'm have i glad to be on, back on the air with you guys. And for those of you who have been uh, listening uh, to this uh, series on Benedict Arnold since um I first began uh, not too long ago, that is to uh, Joyce Lee Malcolm's uh, book, uh, The Tragedy of Benedict Arnold. I have no doubts that all of you are learning something new about Benedict Arnold himself that you didn't know before. And I can assure you all that uh, you all will continue to learn more about him. Of course, you know, we all would like to believe that what we learn from from the past about our um, American Revolutionary War heroes, that all of them um, left some form of good legacy. And while that is true, we are still having to remind ourselves that some did, did not leave perhaps the best of legacies, and one of them just so happens to be Benedict Arnold. And yes, we all learned from our textbooks years ago that he defected, but we've never really gotten the real story behind the defection. But it is fair to say that uh, even after three uh, podcast episodes, and tonight's being number four, that we are gradually inching bit by bit in increments, being in stages, that we are putting together uh, the pieces to a big puzzle. I'd say maybe over 100 pieces at most behind why this man who seemed to have everything so right. Yes, he overcame some uh, misfortunes given his uh, father's actions. You know, obviously we're a disgrace to the community of Norwich. And now we're putting together uh, what lies uh, for greater potential future. Here he, um, here the uh, Lathrop family came to his rescue Thank heavens, you know, Hannah Arnold, as unfortunate as it is that she's passed on, thank heavens that her relatives were kind enough to stick their necks out for her, knowing that she really, in a sense, was a victim. You know, she didn't tell her husband to become an alcoholic. She didn't tell her husband to mess up his fortunes, given that Hannah's first husband, Absalom King, had had started that business and when uh, Hannah married uh, Benedict, uh, whom became Captain Arnold, what did he do? Well, he um, had a great thing going, but yet he allowed he allowed the business to 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 fall apart. 
And sometimes, sadly, that's what happens with business owners, even in today's modern world. But we must be reminded of the fact that uh, in colonial times, communities were very close-knit. Everybody knew one another. And when someone allowed themselves to fall from grace and not have any remorse for it, it was a big deal. It was seen as a huge embarrassment for a community. But in the case with uh, Hannah Arnold, the community of Norwich did, did have great sympathy for her. Simply in part because Benedict's father, Captain Benedict Arnold, he had, you know, he married into a well-to-do family, but yet allowed his own personal insecurities and his personal actions to ruin the good name of not only uh, for himself, but the good name of his wife and her extended family. So there's a lot of um, a lot of things that we simply cannot take for granted, given the circumstances that even Benedict Arnold as a young man, uh, had been exposed to in his time. But going forward in this uh, podcast segment episode, we're going to learn about where Benedict Arnold is now. I mean, of course, we know that he is in New Haven, but we're going to learn just how great New Haven is. I mean, not that where Benedict, Benedict, Benedict Arnold uh, was came from before being Norwich was bad, but it is fair to say that Benedict Arnold does need a break from Norwich. And we may be uh, shocked to find that this isn't a short-term break from Norwich, but really a long-term break. We're also going to learn about, in this episode, um, how th- what the aftermath of the uh, French and Indian War entailed. In other words, yes, the British emerged victorious, but we're also going to uh, learn whether or not there were some consequences behind emerging victorious. I guess it's fair to say that just because one side wins a war, it doesn't mean that everything's always rosy. When when battle when actual battlefield fighting is stopped and when you draw the lines as to, you know, whom gets to settle where, whom is being looked after over someone else or after, or rather after versus another party that had been promised from the get-go and now all of a sudden the the tides have turned. We're also going to learn about some uh, infamous uh, legislative uh, measures enacted by Parliament that uh, set off um, not just one firestorm, but multiple firestorms. So why don't we get the show on the road and let's be prepared for our first uh, leadoff question, which is the following. Was New Haven, where 21-year-old Benedict Arnold settled, the fastest growing port along the Long Island Sound? Yes. From 1750 onward, New Haven's population rose steadily, meaning that wharfs, where ships were coming in and out, they were constantly teeming. You know, these ships were were constantly visible. They were constantly present, regardless of their size, to where the ships are loading, as well as unloading their cargoes from voyages 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean, including travels northward into Canada, as well as travels that originated southward and went up north, being that from the Caribbean up into the, um, up into the New England region. So, you know, it's one thing for, there to be a, for a town to be a port village, but if it's a thriving one like New Haven, there's never going to be a dull moment. Uh, businesses are going to be uh, teeming 
left and right with a never-ending, um, it might be fair to say, like, you know, a never-ending um, instance of supply and demand where people need goods, but at the same time there has to be enough of a demand to ensure that the supplies of those goods are going to meet um, adequate levels. But but regardless, there is always going to be enough, what appears to be enough business to where to where just about everybody in New in uh, New Haven needs something, whether it's from England or from uh, Canada, the Caribbean. The bottom line is is that it's all under English domain, meaning that if you that you can't trade with anybody else. It's between uh, you all, England, the thirteen colonies, England, and the other uh, colonies being the Caribbean. So think of it as like a triangle of sorts. You send uh, goods to England and. England um, England uh, approves of the goods. They uh, basically do all the formal uh, legal documents on their end and then ship it to, say, another uh, one of the colonies in the 13 colonies. So if you're wanting to send something from Virginia up to uh, New Hampshire, you've got to send it to England first, and then England will inspect uh, the goods at, say, in London or in uh, Bristol, in one of the port towns, and then send it uh, back 3,000 miles across the ocean, say, to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. But that's how the system worked for a long time. Now, um, interesting enough, you know, there's that college in New Haven, being uh, Yale College. It's named after a gentleman by the name of Elihu Yale, who just so happened to be a sea merchant himself in the international trade, Yale College was founded in 1701, five years before America's uh, first uh, founding uh, forefather was born, being that of Mr. Benjamin Franklin in 1706. So in 1701, folks, that's when uh, Yale College was founded. Of course, the first uh, two uh, colleges established in America were in the 17th century, being um, Harvard University in 1636 and Virginia's College of William and Mary in 1693. And what do you know, 30 years ago, I do remember when the College of William and Mary was celebrating its uh, tricentennial. As a matter of fact, uh, the late Queen Elizabeth, I believe, came to um, Williamsburg. I know uh, back when uh, Charles, uh, her son, was the Prince of Wales, he attended uh, the event as well, but it was a... Um, it was a big hoopla to celebrate about. So, yes, Yale College was founded in 1701 by Elihu Yale, a sea merchant in the international trade. And how he was able to get the college named after him, believe it or not, folks, it's very unique. He donated income, that is his income, from selling uh, nine bales worth of goods, including 417 books, and a portrait of King George I, who was who became the first British monarch in the House of Hanover. When uh, King George I became King of England, he uh, succeeded uh, Queen Anne, whom, um, sadly, she lost all of her uh, children in infancy, or, uh, or you know, none of her children really made it past. Um, they never made it old enough to where they could have uh, succeeded uh, the throne. Um, her, uh, one of her sons, for whom there's a street in Williamsburg named after uh, Duke of Gloucester, he died um, young, and so basically Queen Anne, she's she was related to um, 
King uh, William and uh, Queen Mary. But given that Anne did not have any um, offspring to take over when she died, uh, that's when uh, King George I um, ascended to the throne in 1714. So he, he was the first British monarch in the House of Hanover. So even for Elihu Yale, it, it did help that he had um, not just connections, but a means for um, giving something back from a philanthropic uh, standpoint, to say the least. Did Benedict Arnold have any extended family residing in New Haven? It turns out he did. He had an uncle named Oliver Arnold, whom was the brother to the late Captain Arnold. He went about offering young Benedict a home and board. And when we think of, you know, room and board, like, you know, with college in, in today's modern times, when, when you hear the term board, like home and board or room and board, Think of a place of living in return for payment or services until getting permanently settled or established somewhere else. So this home and board arrangement is a temporary uh, place until Benedict Arnold, in his case, will be able to find something that's more of a permanent establishment. Young Benedict ultimately found a store to set up shop or I should say business, on New Haven's Chapel Street, which is located nearby the waterfront. So that's perfect. You know, Benedict Arnold can see the ships coming in and out, and he can also keep an eye on the ships that are coming in, say, 3,000 miles across the ocean from England, whom, whom he is expecting um, to come in and supply him with the uh, necessary goods that he could sell to the greater public. His shop comprised of medical instruments, pharmaceuticals, various herbs, but his shop also was home to cosmetics, watches, earrings, stationery, maps, to vast supply of books for people, most notably Yale students. So it might be fair to say that even Benedict Arnold's uh, shop, we might think of it to a degree as a modern-day college bookstore, for students to uh, pick up um, essentials such as, you know, you know, stuff that would pertain like, you know, notebooks, for example, uh, pens, pencils, stationery, um, even, you know, clothing of sorts like, you know, a sweatshirt or a T-shirt. Um, now, of course, they didn't have any. Uh, I don't believe they had any shirts or T-shirts back in um, back in Benedict Arnold's time when he was a. Uh, living in New Haven that say that said there probably were not any shirts that said Yale College on on them. I think it's fair to say that um, that the clothing that young men wore was it was what do you call proper formal clothing to uh, to class. You didn't uh, go casual and dress whatever however you felt. I mean there was obviously a strong standard of uh, code uh, conduct as to how you were to uh, present yourself when going into class. Hannah Arnold, um, and remember, of course, Benedict Arnold's mother was, her name was Hannah, but Benedict also had a sister named Hannah, and we have to remember the two of them are the only surviving uh, siblings out of the six that have uh, made it, that will make it well into uh, prime adulthood. But Hannah Arnold, uh, being Benedict's sister, is still living at the family estate in Norwich. And I'm sure some of you were thinking, okay, uh, what's happened with Hannah? Where is she? Well, turns out she's still in Norwich. 
how is she still able to live at the estate? Well, remember, folks, it was the Lathrop family that uh, bought the mortgage, which basically prevented um, the elder Mrs. Arnold, being that of Mrs. Hannah Arnold, it prevented her from basically having to be, you know, left on, left out on the street to fend for herself. So, nonetheless, given that um, Mr. and Mrs. Arnold have passed on, Hannah has been a um, strong beneficiary, thanks to the Lathrop's uh, gener uh, generous um, financial rescue, if that's a nice way to put it. So, Yes, Hannah Arnold is still uh, living at the family estate, thanks to uh, the Lathrop family buying Captain Arnold's uh, mortgage. But she did eventually move to New Haven. How so? Well, her brother, the generous, uh, and this was very generous of young Benedict to do this, but he paid off the remaining debts that belonged to their late father. And he also... Um, and he also was able to go about buying the mortgage from the Lathrops in return by selling the home. Wow, you talk about a shrewd investment right there, folks. To not only have the money to buy the mortgage, but to sell it as well and be able to ensure that whoever bought the home uh, would, you know, take good care of it. So... By doing this, uh, Benedict Arnold and his sister have cut all direct ties with Norwich. They feel that it's just time to get a clean break, not just short-term, but long-term, but they want, a, they want a permanent break from Norwich. They don't want to be reminded of their father's misfortunes. They don't want to be remembered about this, this incredible... Um, success that he had or the the incredible successes he had only to see only to have known that it all fell apart by his own undoing i know that sounds harsh to say but sometimes it's it can be uh, individuals individuals themselves sometimes it can be their own great their greatest undoing can be a direct result of the improper actions they take that not only have short term but long term uh, consequences were there any red flags which had potential to negatively impact Benedict Arnold's profession or practice? Well, you know, here Benedict Arnold is. He's 21 years old in 1762. And the bulk of the heavy fighting with the French and Indian War ended really, in a sense, two years, in 17, two years earlier in 1760. And what do you know? And who is King of England in 1762, folks? He ascended to the throne two years before in late 1760. That was none other than um, Mr. King George III, whose grandfather was King George II. So King George III is taking over for his uh, late grandfather. It's um, it's probably obvious to say that King George III's father must have died when he was young, because if King George III's father was still alive, this King George III would not have the grandson would not have uh, been the one next in line to have uh, ascended to the throne. So, yes, in 1762, the thought of um, of Britain's uh, subjects, the thirteen colonies, the thought alone of them wanting to um, 
to uh, cause any kind of upheaval in terms of wanting to separate from the mother country is just not even, uh, it's not even thought of, which as of right now may be a good thing. But as for uh, the question regarding were there any red flags which had potential to negatively impact Benedict Arnold's profession, the answer is yes. Well before, well before the year 1775 emerged when the first shots got fired at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, British Parliament had imposed multiple, or I should say never-ending restrictions on trade and taxes which Arnold himself and other New England merchants heavily opposed. So believe it or not, folks, if there was something, something that really irked Britain's subjects, it had to do with Parliament's never-ending um, enactment of measures that pertain to restrictions on trade and taxes. These could be the early seeds of what could be a potential, um, of what, what I might, of what could lead to potential um, uprising, and not just uprising, but maybe a little rebellion as well. Arnold and many other merchants turned to purchasing and and selling of smuggled goods, which you know we know are illegal goods, outside British jurisdiction as a means behind not having to pay British taxes. Wow. Even in colonial days, folks, individuals, or rather I should say um, merchants, in the case with Benedict Arnold, they found ways to um, beat the system. They found ways to cheat it. They found ways to, to test Parliament's waters in ways that... Um, most of us never would have thought existed, but it did happen. What high distinction got bestowed upon Benedict Arnold in 1765? He got accepted to New Haven's Masonic Lodge at age 24. So basically, he became a Freemason. And I should point out that uh, close to a dozen of our forefathers who signed the Declaration of Independence were Freemasons and close to a dozen of them uh, also signed the United States Constitution. So the practice of Freemasonry has been around for a very long time, but it turns out, folks, that even Benedict Arnold himself was a Freemason. He was elected unanimously by his peers. He sought, or rather I should say pledged, to uphold the virtues or principles, I should say, listen carefully to these uh, principles, living honorably, loving your neighbors, practicing justice. Those are all important virtues. But the one that really struck, that strikes me um, the most is living honorably. Well, by living honorably, are you upholding all the, um, are you adhering to the rules of society? Yes. Are you, um, are you being faithful not so much, I mean, are you being faithful not only to your family, but are you being faithful to your community? Are you with, are you going to stay with your community, not only through the best of times, but through the worst of times? Yes, you should. So I'm beginning to wonder if living honorably, is that something that's going to stick with Benedict Arnold as, um, 
as uh, colonial America undergoes some more uh, radical challenges in a few short years, and not just in a few short years, but say maybe 10 years uh, down the road by the time the mid-1770s arrive. I mean, we just have to wonder. Well, Samuel uh, Mansfield uh, was a well-to-do uh, merchant, and I'm sure some of you are wondering, okay, other than the fact that Samuel Mansfield's a well-to-do merchant, what kind of connection does he have with Benedict Arnold? Well, pay, pay very, very careful attention. He is a high-ranking sheriff in the community of uh, New Haven, but he, but uh, Mr. Mansfield himself, like Benedict Arnold, is also a fellow Mason. Mr. Mansfield invited young 24-year-old Benedict Arnold to dine frequently with his family. So think about this. Benedict Arnold's a bachelor, okay? But it just so happens that Mr. Mansfield introduced Benedict to his eldest daughter, Margaret. Margaret uh, Mansfield became young Benedict's first love. Let's see where this goes, folks. Prior to Benedict and Margaret, and another um, name for a, a woman whose name is Margaret is usually uh, Peggy. So prior to Benedict and uh, Margaret going about uh, courting, the French and Indian War's aftermath aftermath folks being the end of the war do you think the end of the french and in, do you think that the french and indian war and how it ended do you think its aftermath ended well or bad well don't we all know that britain um, emerged as a victor in the french and indian war yes and I, if that's the case i know many of you are thinking well why is that a bad thing i mean how can there be anything bad about someone emerging victorious from the Seven Years' War? I mean, after all, the French and Indian War might as well have been considered a world war of its time, and rightfully so. Well, with regards to the uh, French and Indian War's aftermath not being pretty, it can be fair to say that um, the reason why it didn't turn out to be pretty was was from a financial standpoint and you know wars are costly they're not cheap and even in colonial times wars were just as costly like they are in today's modern world so why don't we find out just how much it cost britain to fund this war would you all like to know the amount of money well Britain's war debt stood around 137 million pounds. How much money do you think that all that how much money do you think that would be the equivalent to in today's money? How about 1.3 billion pounds in today's modern money? So it's one thing to have millions of pounds in debt, but in today's time we're talking 1.3 billion pounds. That would probably take, that would take a long time to pay off. So we, there again, folks, keep in mind that uh, funding a war in colonial times was not a cheap thing. So Britain's treasury, it would be fair to say that the treasury department um, in the British government is depleted. 
Uh, in other words, they're going to be operating out of the red versus in the green. So they're so they're they're in the deficit. They're in the hole. They don't have a surplus to work with. So one thing Britain knows for sure is this: that her uh, subjects, being the thirteen North the thirteen colonies in North America, as far north as New Hampshire, as far south as Georgia, these thirteen colonies. You know, we've Britain has been protecting them for quite some time, especially along the frontier, prevent preventing any kind of uh, British raids from happening. You know, making sure that people, you know, that British subjects who live somewhere along the frontier lines are not going to be exposed to um, to attacks on um, Indian tribes living in what we now know is like present day Ohio, such as the Shawnees and the Delawares who are very powerful uh, tribes, they want to make sure that, you know, that her, Britain would want to make sure that her subjects are immune from any um, attacks from these um, Indian tribes. And if you live, say, in uh, western Massachusetts, whom would, your, whom would be your greatest concern for um, an attack from Indians just further west of you? How about the Iroquois Nation in New York State? And we do have to remember, folks, you know, present day, uh, the present day capital of New York uh, being Albany is not too terribly far from uh, the Massachusetts line. So and even if you live in western Connecticut, you have to be very concerned about what lies to the west in New York with the Iroquois nation. You've got the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Seneca, Cayuga, uh, the Tuscarora. You have... Um, Trying to think. Hold, hold on, folks. So trust me on this. I, I can get this one right. The Onondaga, Oneida, uh, Tuscarora, Cayuga, Seneca, and uh, Canandaigua. Uh, I, I believe that's it. But I mean, but that's a Six Nation uh, tribe, um, Six Nation uh, group to say the least. And um, they are uh, very powerful. Um, it's a very powerful nation. So if you are very, con if you're very concerned about your protection along the uh, frontier. Uh, then you then you would certainly want Britain to protect you, but the problem is that okay, Britain knows that okay the colonies need to help with the costs in keeping the British army presence, most notably along the frontiers. But there's going to be some changes. In other words, one one thing that had been allowed to go on uh, prior prior to the French and Indian Wars end was that uh, state uh, government or colonial governments were able to, um, you know, go about, you know, implementing their own taxes. They were able to do a lot of things on their own, but times are changing, and Parliament knows that things have to be a little different now. And they have to be a lot different now. It's not because they beat the French, but they also had were required to um, become allies with Indians whom had Indian tribes whom had um, become part who had previously become partners with the French. So who is Britain now forgetting, folks? She's kind of forgetting about her own subjects along the, uh, the, the her subjects being her own people living in the British uh, in the colonies. She's now more concerned about helping out um, Indian uh, nations along the frontiers 
And so, therefore, this is going to be a violation of the uh, proclamation of 1763. Well, not so much a violation. The proclamation of 1763 is going to prohibit, um, Parliament's going to issue the proclamation of 1763, which is going to prohibit further uh, westward expansion past uh, the Allegheny Mountains, past the Appalachian Mountains, I should say. Uh, so, in other words, there's no, there's not going to be any westward expansion. Um, Parliament had promised her subjects, being the uh, the people, uh, the British uh, subjects in uh, colonial America, that you know when the war is over, you know you all will be allowed to go uh, further west into what we now know as Ohio and into present-day Western Pennsylvania with Pittsburgh. But all that's changed now, so a lot of people feel. Um, how do you call it? They feel uh, slighted. They feel, you know, angry. They feel betrayed. So if that's, if you think that's just the, the tip of the iceberg, uh, how about we, we need to focus on some legislative measures that uh, Parliament uh, is going to be enacting that is going to um, set off some other storms. So we've got a lot of work ahead of us uh, to uh, cover here. Uh, what tax measure passed Parliament in April of 1764? How about the sugar tax, which cut a tax on molasses from six pence, in other words, pennies, to three pence a gallon? The tax imposed, um, or rather I should say the tax alone impacted uh, the molasses trade. And the molasses trade was vital to New England with regards to the rum industry. Benedict Arnold and other New England merchants were heavily dependent upon the French islands in the West Indies for sugarcane. New measures had problems given a majority of the public supported uh, business dealings with smugglers as a means of providing or as a means of avoiding to pay British taxes, which increased prices on goods to the colonists. Uh, voicing displeasure over not being properly represented in Parliament. Okay, that's just the beginning, folks. November 1st, 1765, Parliament's enactment of the Stamp Act was due to go into place. The Stamp Act focused on excise tax versus import tax. So the Stamp Act it focuses on taxing all things uh, paper, Paper that is designed for official documents, newspapers, to playing cards. Merchants are now required to use stamped paper for recording their cargoes. Opposition was felt everywhere in all 13 colonies. And in Connecticut, where Benedict Arnold uh, hails from, their stamp official named Jared Ingersoll he was a law-abiding and respectful individual, but he soon became the, tar the target of mob fear tactics. Fall of 1765, Jared Ingersoll resigned from his post, but by doing so, he had to take uh, an oath of allegiance by denouncing the Stamp Act itself, which he did, and he was able to remain in Connecticut and live uh, peacefully. But of course, if he... Uh, <laughs> revoked his um, oath of allegiance, then he would have met with um, unpleasantries that probably would have gone beyond the sky's ceiling. Although uh, Parliament uh, repealed the Stamp Act in March of 1766, well, what do you know, folks? This uh, legislation 
didn't last very long. And when Parliament repealed it, there were um, parties going on everywhere. It might there might as well have been like you know a fireworks display. Um, if you read uh, American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution, and those of you who were with me when we uh, did that podcast series back in late 2021, when John Hancock learned that Parliament had revoked the Stamp Act or repealed it, John Hancock and several other uh, prominent uh, merchant figures in Boston uh, had a party, and they drank Madeira and had fine food, um, they feasted like there was no tomorrow, and they were truly convinced that uh, that Parliament maybe had finally learned a lesson on what happens when you don't uh, pay attention to the needs of your subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean. But as much as I hate to say this, that would prove to be, um, it would prove to be a short-lived um, celebration. So, Although Parliament did repeal the Stamp Act in March of 1766, was 1766 one of those years where Benedict Arnold struggled with the situation of staying afloat financially? I believe it or not, folks, yes, Benedict Arnold did struggle with staying afloat financially. He was confronted with situations where other people did not pay him back on time, which meant greater inabilities to meet his own personal duties or commitments. More often than not, it's easy to assume that when one is in, uh, when one is not in the best of financial situation, it's their own undoing. And while that has been true, we also should be reminded that there are others out there who are not in the best of financial situations because they can't get, um, they can't get those who promise to pay them back to pay them back when they're supposed to. It's a constant struggle between creditors and debtors. So Benedict Arnold wrote repeatedly to those owing him money. Seventeen In the years of 1763 and 1765, um, Benedict Arnold um, reached out to um, the Lathrop family, whom were kind enough to write letters on Benedict's behalf, pleading with the debtors to pay him back. In the winter of 1767, okay, now is Peggy Mansfield still in the picture? Yes. Winter of 1767, 26-year-old Benedict Arnold married the first woman he loved, Peggy Mansfield. So they were able to court, and they were able to have a union. And what do you know? Benedict and Peggy are husband and wife. Was debt itself something Benedict Arnold including countless other merchants, could not avoid. Believe it or not, uh, folks, uh, I will have to admit here that the answer is yes. And I think it's also fair to say that in colonial times, no matter how well one was, in, no matter how well off one was financially, debt was a problem, not just to one sector of society. Debt existed for uh, just about everybody, regardless of your class status. I have to be reminded that the gentry who made up the probably the wealthiest uh, 2% of Virginia society, for example, often had lots of problems uh, financially. They always had the means to show off what they possessed. But when it came to being able to pay off outstanding debts, that was a whole other um, story onto itself. So 
uh, we should just be reminded that there were no such things as Chapter 7, Chapter 11 bankruptcy laws. If you were in debt, um, you for one, you were really up a creek, and two, you had to um, do whatever it took to get out of debt if it meant selling off uh, several valuable items, but it was just one of those things that it was a never-ending uh, saga, regardless of where you stood in the greater uh, ranks of society, but it probably would be fair to say that those who dealt with debt more so probably were from the upper uh, tiers of uh, society. So as for Benedict Arnold, yes, he, um, he dealt with uh, debt um, a great deal not long after he married uh, Peggy Mansfield. His financial issues got worse, and prior to tying the knot, he owed 1,700 pounds to London suppliers. 1,700 pounds. I'm not sure what that would equate to in today's money, but, but even 1,700 pounds, that's a lot of money to owe. So in seven, so how will the, uh, colon, the Connecticut colony tackle debt? Because I know from a previous podcast we talked about uh, how the most simple strategy really was to send those who were in debt to debtor's prison and they remained there until they could find a way to um, erase all the outstanding debts. But in 1767, the Connecticut legislature reinvents, um, reinvents old strategies and and puts into use new uh, measures behind uh, curtailing and modifying the um, existing uh, issues with regards to uh, those whom are struggling with debt and how to get out of the out of the mess. So, in 1767, the Connecticut Legislature made new revisions behind debtors' problems. Instead of going to jail, debtors were now required to take an oath or a pledge, I should say where they agreed to keep working on repaying all outstanding bills. So in other words, they had to sign an oath saying that I will agree to work for as long as it takes until I get X amount of debt. Say if I'm, okay, if I'm 100 pounds in debt, then I have to work left and right. And if it means working more than one occupation to pay the debt off, then then that's my uh, pledge, that is my commitment. And if I renege on it, then yes, maybe I should be sent to jail. So Benedict Arnold will become a recipient to the new strategy. Jared Ingersoll, whom was one of Arnold's friends, including his lawyer, worked out a deal with London creditors allowing Arnold to stay in business and repay outstanding sums. Well, had the Connecticut legislature not come up with this new strategy in 1767, maybe it's fair to say that Benedict Arnold would have probably landed in jail. Probably would have. What measure did Parliament enact come February of 1767 around the same time Benedict Arnold was struggling to stay afloat financially? Parliament passed a series of acts known as the Townshend Acts, which placed standard import taxes, but doing so on items from glass, paint, lead, paper, to the most infamous of goods being tea. I mean, yes, tea, I enjoy drinking tea, but we should keep in mind that in 1767 there are a lot of people in America who do not like tea. 
And the reason why they don't like tea is because it's not as popular as drinking such beverages as um, brandy or um, punch with alcohol in it or um, what we might think of as like a gin and tonic in today's time. The only group of uh, people who are going to be drinking tea in 1767 really are women because it's more of a, it really is a ladylike beverage for women to have when women are congregating together, whether it's at a salon or they are um, congregating together in their home. Uh, the only time maybe a woman would have been having an alcoholic beverage is if she was at a tavern with her husband where it was, you know, say a regalia or I don't know if a ball, but something where a husband and wife would have been seen together. But otherwise, women, you would not have seen women uh, drinking alcohol together. If that happened, it probably would be fair to say that it was a red flag. Just proper etiquette of the time, uh, to say the least. But as for the Townshend Acts, they were named after a fellow by the name of Mr. Charles Townshend, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which was uh, basically a title uh, referred to as a Senior Minister of the Crown. In this case, uh, Mr. Charles Townshend uh, being Senior Minister to George III. The Townshend Act sought to do more than just... Um, place standard uh, import taxes on the items from glass, paint, lead, paper, and tea. The Acts sought to raise money throughout all 13 colonies to help pay for governors and judges' salaries, which meant remaining loyal to the crown. And, um, and by doing so, it meant a better means of enforcing order behind such things as trade regulation, to maintaining importance, or rather I should say control, over Parliament's power to tax her subjects, being the colonists. In other words, Parliament's trying to make something very clear to the, um, the people uh, by saying, look, you're not going to mess with us. We are supreme ruler, so no matter how much you object to us, you will have to adhere to our rules, whether you like it or not. The Townshend Acts met with stiff opposition throughout all 13 colonies, even the port cities. You know, think of port cities like Boston, uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, probably Newport, Rhode Island, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, just to name a few uh, port cities. I don't know about Philadelphia because uh, Philadelphia is a lot more loyalist than, say, Boston, uh, just to give you a heads up. So, uh, but anyways, yeah, the Townshend Acts met with stiff opposition throughout all 13 colonies. There were a fair share of port cities whom refused to import British goods. That is, uh, except goods coming from England into um, colonial, American, colonial America seaports. So refusal to import British goods is one thing. And so if that was the case, uh, Parliament went about repealing uh, the taxes on items from glass, lead, paper, but not the tea. The, the import duty on the tea uh, was essential to maintain. Just before and going into March of 1770, the majority of the Townshend, uh, or rather I should say the majority of the Townshend tax measures had been lifted, but opposition to the Townshend Acts did play a key factor, not the ultimate key factor, factor, but it did play a key factor 
behind the lead-up to what happened on the night of March 5, 1770, the infamous Boston Massacre. Now, was Benedict Arnold um, in, was he back in, say, Connecticut, for example, when the Boston Massacre occurred? Uh, it turns out he wasn't. He was in the Caribbean, um, when the Caribbean region, when learning about what unfolded on March 5th of 1770. By 1770, ben Benedict and his wife Margaret did have two sons. His growing fortunes, including, his growing fortunes were on the rise. But at the same time, his personal ma manner stirred up uh, jealousies to gossip. Even in colonial times, folks, uh, if you engaged in acts of gossip, most notably in Virginia, it was a crime. So if it's, it was one thing to maybe, say, have a disagreement with someone, but if you went around and spread uh, lies about them and uh, spread things about them that they didn't want the rest of the community to know, if you engaged in an act of gossip, then, yeah, you were in hot water. In late 1770, Benedict Arnold learned that someone had spread uh, a vicious rumor in New Haven. This one, talk about crazy, but it happened. Someone had spread a vicious rumor in New Haven that Arnold himself got venereal disease while down in the Caribbean the year before in 1769. Uh, this claim, or I should say allegation, proved to be false, but Arnold knew the accusation alone had impacted not only his image, but caused uh, strain on his immediate family, including dear friends. Arnold, believe it or not, tracked down the accuser, which just so happened, folks, to be someone from the New Haven ship industry. It was a New Haven ship captain of all people. This wasn't someone from the dregs of society. This was someone from within the inner, um, from the inner uh, business that the same business that Arnold worked in, that engaged in this kind of activity, and it just so happens that the man was a former employee of Benedict Arnold's. I tell you, you never know sometimes where the accusations are going to surface. They don't always have to come from the outside. They can a lot of times they come in from the inside. So Arnold's lawyer, being that of Mr. Gerald Jared Ingersoll, he obtained depositions from men whom worked in the West Indies, and every one of them confirmed that Arnold was in good health and never partook in any activity deemed unbecoming. Benedict Arnold prevailed. I, I know he was glad to get the monkey off his back for that one. Now, what did Parliament repeal one month? after uh, the Boston Massacre incident took place. Well, on April 12, 1770, Parliament fully repealed the Townshend Acts of 1767, but the matter involving the tea did not go away altogether. Okay, so we have a couple of years where there's not a whole lot of widespread violence, although the one big event, uh, for those of you who were with me from the previous podcast, when we talked about rebels at sea privateering in the American Revolution. In 1772, we learned about the Gaspé affair in Rhode Island. That was probably the big thing that was going on between the time frame of 1771-1772. So we go to May 10th, 1773. Parliament passed the Tea Act, which sought to reduce large existing quantities of tea that had not been uh, sold um, Basically, these uh, large existing quantities of tea have been, are um, currently being held up by the British East India Company, whom already was facing a severe 
financial hardships, and they needed to find a, the the act itself sought to modify all outstanding financial hardships, which meant Parliament was able to grant a monopoly to the East India Company, thus allowing them sole exclusive rights in importing tea to the 13 colonies. Now, did Parliament's subjects or Britain's subjects have a say in this? No. So the key objective was for the East India Company to sell the tea at cheaper prices versus smuggled tea, which accounted for roughly 86% of all tea in America. Folks, there is... Britain's subjects are winning the war over tea because 86% of the tea is from um, is smuggled Dutch tea. So the monopoly that um, that was given to the East India Company, the monopoly that was imposed, is now being seen by the colonists as another violation of improper consent to not being fairly represented overseas 3,000 miles away. Well, how about this one? There are, um, you know, we've been told about a, a trio of ships, of British ships, that is, whom um, had, they had a, a whole assortment of cargoes on their vessels, but it was most infamous, the most infamous of cargoes was the tea. Does anybody know uh, the Dartmouth, the Eleanor, and the Beaver? They were the three British ships transporting uh, tea, and they came into Boston Harbor. One of them came around um, late November of 1773, and the other two came in early December 1773. British law required the Dartmouth to unload and pay all taxes within 20 days, and if this was not done, customs officials had the right to confiscate the cargo. The Boston, Massachusetts chapter of the Sons of Liberty, which that organization originated in New York City, but the Boston, Massachusetts chapter of the Sons of Liberty petitioned Massachusetts Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson to prohibit all three ships from unloading their cargoes. Hutchinson denied the petition request, and there were uh, a small number of uh, Tory families who lived along what's called Tory Row, who... Uh, were in demand of the tea. And Tory Row, from what I learned, uh, comprised of about nine or ten uh, families who all married into one another. And it's like the old saying, you know, basically it was like old money. And for these uh, for, uh, Tory families uh, being loyalists, I know that the Hutchinsons and the Olivers um, were very uh, prominent loyalist uh, families, and, and they were uh, related to one another. So so if there are uh, people in Massachusetts and Boston getting uh, wanting tea from uh, the East India Tea Company, just remember they are loyal to king and country. So, yes, Thomas Hutchinson, the governor, denied the petition request. And so come December 16, 1773, a group of men around or just over 100 disguised themselves as Mohawk Indians. Okay, that's the other... <laughs> tribe that made up the Iroquois nation. So Mohawk, uh, Seneca, Oneida, Onondaga, uh, Tuscarora, and uh, Cayuga. 
So there I have my uh, six uh, Indian nation for the League of the, the Iroquois folks. So anyways, yes, um, the um, 100 or so uh, men disguised themselves as Mohawk Indians, and they um, went about safely escorting uh, the British crews off of each vessel, only to dump all 342 chests of tea into the Boston Harbor. The damage onto itself was worth... Uh, Roughly about 10,000 pounds, or about 1.7 million in today's money. Now, did Parliament respond swiftly following Boston uh, Tea Party's actions from December 16, 1773? Yes, they did. They didn't waste any time. For starters, Massachusetts's governor was removed and replaced with a military commander for, for all 13 colonies, being General Thomas Gage. The governor's council was now appointed by the crown versus the colonial legislature. The port of Boston, which was, uh, the port of Boston got closed altogether, which resulted in shutting down the heart of the town's maritime economy. The port and the capital now re relocated north to Salem. Town meetings no longer held unless permission was granted. Trials of crown officials could be held elsewhere outside the colony of Massachusetts, or even an, or the trials themselves could take place 3,000 miles across the ocean in England. Parliament's newest measures, known as the Coercive, a.k.a. Intolerable Acts of 1774, that's what they were known. Colonies from South Carolina, Virginia, to neighboring colonies bordering Massachusetts, like, say, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, uh, sent what they could in the form of contributions from food and supplies to Boston's people. Um, some, some prominent uh, South Carolinians said that, okay, if Parliament closed the port of Boston, us people down in South Carolina, we, Parliament could close the port of Charleston, which was uh, the southern colony's uh, busiest port. So it's just not the people of Massachusetts who are impacted, folks. It's everybody else. Benedict Arnold was angered by Parliament's actions towards Massachusetts's people, including the ram ramifications they posed for other colonies, including Connecticut, which uh, went about joining a group of nearly 70 New Haven militiamen whom established a militia company. March of 1775, the militia company that Arnold belonged to now became the governor's second company of guards. The company chose Arnold as their commanding captain. And one month later, April 19th of 1775, confrontation ensued between Britain and her subjects just west of Boston, out on an open field known as Lexington Green. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, segment, and we are getting near the end of the time that we do have, but it's fair to say that Benedict Arnold has seen a lot of things change over a 10-year, 10-12-year span. He, along with several other New England merchantmen, probably didn't think their uh, ties to Britain would change, but once Parliament started imposing all those unnecessary taxes and restrictions on trade, those were just the beginning seeds for what we now know as all-out all rebellion. 
Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air with you all. And uh, when we're on the air again next, we're going to have a lot more to discuss. Thank you again as always. And wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe.